want to draw your attention to John 1, 29. The gospel writer John has held up John the Baptist as an example of what it means to be a witness. But he's not really told us much about what John has said. He's made it clear that John wanted to glorify Jesus. John wanted his life to be a billboard pointing to the greatness of Jesus the Messiah. But now starting in verses 29 and continuing through verse 34, we get a glimpse of the content of what John was saying. And we get this in the very first appearance of Jesus in this gospel. Everything leading up to this has really been an introduction. John has whet our appetites to see that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. He has pointed to John the Baptist as what it means to, to focus upon Jesus. But now Jesus is on the scene. More than likely, it's not the first time John the Baptist had seen Jesus. They were cousins after all. No doubt they had seen each other with fairly a fair amount of frequency over the years and more than likely John has already baptized Jesus. John's gospel does not record the baptism. However, it does record John the Baptist saying, I saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. But John's gospel doesn't focus upon the baptism. Instead, it focuses upon the declaration that John the Baptist makes when he saw Jesus on this day. Verse 29. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we have one request we make this morning. Allow us to see Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Now, I am not much of an art aficionado. Now, I enjoy good paintings, but I can't consider myself a, a connoisseur of the classics. I have been to an art museum, if that counts for anything, and I came close to getting kicked out of it. It was like Gomer Powell goes to the big city. Jody and I had attended, or she was taking an art class at Dallas Baptist University and had an assignment to go to the Ammon Carter Museum of Art in Fort Worth, so I went with her. We're there looking at a picture and I decided to, to show that I was some sort of an expert and I put my hand on my chin because that's what you do at, at art museums and I started pointing at this picture and at that point, the moment I lifted my arm, it was like two guys, like the art secret service, came out of nowhere and said, sir, please don't point and get that close to the paintings we'll have to ask you to leave. I didn't know. I did not know. But you know, I do appreciate good pictures. Generally speaking, there are different types of art. Now two very uh, pieces of, or genres of art that are on the extremes, one is called realism. Now realism is very simple. It's where the artist wants to paint what he, see, he or she sees. He wants or she wants to display the reality of what they see. That's where we get a lot of the, the masters from the Renaissance. They paint pictures. You look at it, you know it's a person. That's realism. 
to show things as they really are. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is what's called abstract expressionism. Are you impressed yet? Abstract expressionism. That's the art that looks like somebody took a paintbrush and just flicked it on the canvas. Abstract expressionism can be colors, can be shapes, because the point of the artist is not to portray what is really there. The point of the artist is to say, whatever you see is what's there. You interpret what you see. So if you look at that white canvas and you see a white rabbit running in a white snowstorm, which I don't know if there's any other colors for snowstorms, that's what's there. Now the reason I take this little foray into the world of art is this. I wonder how we approach Jesus. Do we approach Jesus with a sense of realism saying, Lord, let me see Jesus as he really is. I want to know him. I want to lay aside all the, the, the common perceptions of Jesus and Lord, I want to know Jesus as he is. Or do we come with the attitude of the abstract expressionist and say, I'll see Jesus how I want to see him. I'll make him the savior I want him to be. So that often we come to the scripture to know Jesus, but we come with our agenda. We have our cause. We have our values. And so what we do is we come to the scripture and we want to find how Jesus supports our belief, our cause, so that now we can craft Jesus like he's made out of Play-Doh and make him how we want him to be. I'm afraid that all too often we come with the latter view in mind. Jeremy Bowen works for the BBC and he produced a documentary on the life of Jesus. In that documentary, he said these words, It doesn't matter who Jesus was or wasn't. What matters is who people believe him to have been. Let that sink in. It doesn't matter who Jesus was or wasn't, according to Jeremy Bowen. What matters is who people believe him to have been. He could not be more wrong. Who Jesus is is crucial to our faith. And just as we don't have the right to redefine another person, to look at someone and say, this is how you ought to be, we don't have the right to redefine Jesus according to our taste or our views or our whims. Jesus is who Jesus is. And our desire must be to come to know him as he is. That's why the Gospels are written. So that we can know Jesus, not the Jesus of our imagination or the Jesus we desire, but the Jesus who is. That's why John wrote this gospel. John says, I've written these things that you might believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in Him, you may have life. So you understand that who Jesus is is connected to your salvation. If Jesus is not who he said, our salvation is in question. That's why as we look at this first appearance of Jesus, it's crucial to look at the words that John said. Because in this, we get a glimpse of who he is. John sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now think for a moment of all the things John could have said. He could have reached back to Isaiah chapter 11 and said, Look, behold, it is the stump of David, the branch from whom salvation will come. But he didn't. He could have looked at Jesus and he could have said, Behold, it is the line of the tribe of Judah. But he didn't. 
He could have said, look, behold, it is the vine who gives life to all. He could have said, it is the water who gives eternal life to quench our thirst. But he didn't. Instead, he focuses upon this image, the Lamb of God. So it becomes important for us to understand what John meant when he said that. Why did John focus on that one thing and what can we take from that about who Jesus is? Now scholars debate exactly what John meant. We look at it through the lens of the cross and we think, well, it's clear. It's clear he's talking about Jesus' sacrifice. But it really goes much more than that because we have to ask, when John the Baptist said this, what was he thinking? And I think John made a statement here that meant more than he could have ever imagined. Now there are three general views as to what John meant. And what I want to do is I want us to see those views and what we can take away from it. The first is this. When John said, Behold the Lamb of God, he was pointing out that Jesus wins the victory you and I cannot win. Or put another way, Jesus wins the fight you and I can't win. Now it's common for countries to adopt animals to communicate something about that nation. To pick an animal that represents the, the ethos of that nation. For example, what is the, the animal associated with the United States of America? The eagle, the bald eagle, regal, powerful, vision, strong, predator. Don't mess with the eagle. Russia, of course, is usually represented by the, the Russian bear. India's, and uh, India, the nation of India actually has two animals. Both of them terrify me. A tiger and the hooded cobra. Yeah, the hooded cobra, your national symbol. You know what, for Christianity, it is the lamb that is associated with us. That's very interesting. A lamb doesn't exactly strike fear into anyone's heart. And it's very interesting, though, that in John's time, the lamb had become a symbol of messianic expectations. For some reason, the lamb had become associated with the Messiah who was going to bring in the kingdom of God. So you see, we picture this white, fluffy little lamb that Mary went to school with and all that. No, 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 no. The lamb Jesus speaks of had grown in its, the, the image of the people to be a lamb who was a warrior, a lamb who would come in. And you say, why in the world would they do that? It was to communicate something about God's Messiah. The, the, the Messiah of God is gentle, yet fearsome. The Messiah of God is compassionate, yet fierce. The Messiah of God is meek, yet powerful. And all of that is combined in the lamb of God who was to come. That's why he attaches with this Lamb of God, this Lamb who will come and win the victory. Who is he? He takes away the sin of the world. Now the word for take away there is not the common word for atonement. So John's not necessarily carrying the idea of atonement here. The word that is used for take away is to grab hold of and drag forcefully out of the picture. To put it in modern day parlance, we would say Jesus claps the, the cuffs on sin and drags it away. And that's good news for us. Because the truth is you and I cannot defeat sin on our own. When we think of sin, we think of, of, of rebellion or things that are displeasing to God. Usually we think of an action or an attitude. But you know that the scripture displays sin not just as an object or an action that is done, but as a power. The scripture portrays sin as a power that is at work within us and around us to bring us to the point of sin and enslaving us. 
That's why in Genesis chapter 4, when God speaks with Cain, and Cain is wreathing with jealousy at his brother, God says to him, Cain, sin is crouching, ready to pounce on you. That's the image of power. It's a power that is at work to crouch and control. Paul uses the same imagery in Romans chapter 4 when he says, guess what? Sin wants to enslave you. It wants to have power over you. That's why we need to thank God that this lamb is not some gentle lamb. He is the one who is powerful to take away sin. You see, this apocalyptic imagery of Jesus as the Lamb is found in the New Testament. On the screen, you'll see Revelation chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 6. After the, the, the elder has said to John, Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. John looks, and what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. Horns are power. When it says seven, it's saying complete power. This lamb is that warrior who has complete power and authority with seven eyes. Guess what? This lamb is omniscient. He knows which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. The seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Seven, completion. And guess what we see in verse 33? Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. This picture of the lamb is the way that we gain victory over sin. Because we don't trust ourselves. You and I cannot break the power of sin. We need the Lamb who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and the Spirit of God dwelling within us to break the hold of sin in our lives. All sin is a power that will become addictive in your life. That's why we sin without knowing it. How hard do you have to think to rebel against God? How hard do you have to think whenever you see something to think, you know what, I need to be greedy. I need to covet that. No, don't we go there automatically? Why is it that when lies are spoken, we often shift to lying automatically? It is because sin is a power that will enslave. And we cannot free ourselves from it. That's why the good news of Jesus as this military warrior lamb comes to take away the power of sin in our lives by defeating it on the cross. And not only that, he defeats powers around us that you and I are powerless to defeat. I think sometimes we forget that there is a spiritual, unseen world around us every moment of every day. And every spirit ain't the Holy Spirit. There are spirits filled with malice and hatred that want to work to destroy you and your family and your witness to strike at the glory of God. Pastor, you've gone crazy. No, I've gone biblical. Paul calls them powers and authorities, principalities. And you and I have no power against them. Standing against these demonic forces that want to bring despair and depression and discouragement is like standing in front of a forest fire with a water pistol. That's why the gospel is such great good news. This warrior, militaristic lamb is the one who has controlled, captured, and displayed ultimate authority over every demonic force that would align itself against the church of God. Upon the screen, you'll see Colossians chapter 2. Here, Paul says, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. God shows his power and his authority over the demonic in Jesus Christ and ultimately in the cross and the resurrection. 
That's why we need to take it as great good news when we read in Mark chapter 5. Jesus steps out of the boat there at Gadarenes. And he is met by a demoniac. And the first thing they say is, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of the Most High? And Jesus says a word and he has authority over them. You know why Jesus Christ is able to set us free from the power of sin? It is because Jesus Christ has overcome the death that you and I fear. See, not only has he won the battle you and I can't win, he's overcome the death that you and I cannot overcome. See, this is where the second image comes in, and it's the image of Passover. The Gospel of John mentions Passover more than the other three Gospels. Passover becomes the model, the paradigm, the frame by which John understands the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus begins his public ministry outright in John chapter 2 in Jerusalem, speaking publicly for the first time, guess where it is? It's at Passover. He has Jesus returning to Jerusalem again in John chapter 6 at the Passover. And in John chapter 12, where the focus becomes on the last week and the last day of Jesus' life, guess where John points out they are? They are in Jerusalem at Passover. John wants us to understand the life and the ministry of Jesus through the lens of the Passover. Now, some of you are very familiar with what I mean by Passover. Others, maybe not as much. Passover is the event that occurred in Exodus chapter 12. The people of Israel are enslaved. They are slaves under the thumb of Pharaoh. And Moses has time and time again gone in front of the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And time and time again, Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. After nine plagues, Pharaoh is entrenched in his stubborn attitude not to let the people go. And God says, there will be one final plague. And this plague, the death angel is going to pass over the land. And on the night death comes... The firstborn human, the firstborn animal of every household will die. But there's hope. Any who will take a lamb, a newborn lamb, pure, its fleece completely white, and if they will kill that lamb, not breaking its bones in any way, but kill it and put the blood over the doorpost, when death comes, it will see that someone that lamb has died in the place of the firstborn and death will pass over. John wants us to see clearly that Jesus is the one who took death for us. That Jesus is the lamb who died in our place. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Death is what we deserve for our rebellion against God. But Jesus takes our place and dies on our behalf so that when death comes, you and I do not have to be afraid of the wrath of God. Rather, we can face death with confidence knowing that Jesus has overcome it. Now many may say, well, pastor, death is still here, and it is. I've experienced the grief of death. I've stood beside the gravesite of both my mom and dad. As I shared with you earlier, I've heard the most difficult news that most any parent can ever attempt to hear. 
But even then, I face that news. I face the reality of death with confidence knowing that death is not the end. We live in a world that is terrified of death. To the world, it signifies the end of existence. And therefore, we don't talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge it. But as believers, we acknowledge it as a defeated foe that has no power over us. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it like this. He is a former pastor of 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. His wife passed away tragically at a young age when his children were still young themselves. She had cancer. And as they were driving back from the cemetery, the kids were obviously upset and they're crying and they're in the back seat. And at that moment, he is trying to figure out how he can console them over the death of their mother. At that moment, a truck passed by their car, casting a shadow. At that moment, God gave him a glimpse of inspiration and he he looks at the rearview mirror at his kids and he asks them a question. Kids, which is worse, to get hit by that truck or to simply pass through that truck's shadow? The kids were no dummies. Daddy, obviously it's worse to get hit by the truck. The shadow doesn't scare us. We know the shadow will pass. Dr. Barnhouse said, kids, we are in the shadow of death. This is not the end. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. We grieve, but we grieve knowing that death is not the end. It is simply something we pass through, that we will be in the presence of God. As C.S. Lewis once said, as Christians, we never really say goodbye. We simply say, see you later. We need not fear death. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 after talking about the resurrected body. He said, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death we fear has been overcome in the death of Jesus Christ because church, he died in our place as the Passover lamb of God. Behold the lamb of God. So not only has he won the battle you and I can't win, not only has he overcome the death you and I can't overcome, he has made the sacrifice you and I can't pay. See, there's a third image that's circulating in this idea of the Lamb of God, and it comes from the book of Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, God speaks to Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him. Now it's interesting that he said your only son because Abraham had two sons, Ishmael by Hagar and then Isaac by Sarah. But he focuses on Isaac because Isaac was the son of promise. He's the one through whom he said God will bless and multiply you so that your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky. Now he says to Abraham, sacrifice him. They began the journey up to Mount Moriah. Isaac is carrying the sticks upon which the sacrifice will be laid, but he notices something. We've got the sticks. We've got the fire. We don't have the sacrifice. Daddy, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, in verse 6, answers him by saying, God will provide a lamb. God will provide what we need, Isaac. Jehovah Jireh, he will provide. So they got to the top of the mountain. And I can only imagine the surprise on Isaac's face when Abraham says, son, lay down. And as Abraham lifts the knife to follow through in an act of faith, God stops him. He says, Abraham, you don't have to do it. Look over there. There's the lamb I've supplied. 
See, in this, John, in that phrase, is saying, here is the lamb that God has supplied for your sacrifice. You see, you and I couldn't make a sacrifice to atone for our sin. What would we do? What are we going to offer God to atone for our rebellion? Our good works? Our good works are like filthy rags. Even our martyrdom, even if we are martyred for the faith, we are simply a sinner dying who deserved death. We need a perfect sacrifice that we cannot provide. But God in Jesus Christ has provided that. Behold the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 picks up this imagery when he says that God placed all of our iniquities upon Him. And then in the most shocking statement of all it says it pleased God to crush Him with our iniquities. You see whereas God stopped Abraham there was no power, no being, no one that could stop God from sacrificing His Son. To die for our sins. The glorious good news of the gospel is that he overcame death. The Lamb of God did not stay dead because he is God incarnate. Now what are we to do with all this? What do we do with these three truths? That Jesus has won the battle we could not win. He's overcome the death that we fear. And that he has made the sacrifice you and I cannot make. First thing we need to do is this. We must trust him for our salvation. The scripture says it's, born, it's appointed a man once to die in the judgment. There will be a day when you and I stand before God. And God is just. He can't ignore sin. But to provide a means of salvation, He has provided the Lamb who died, who took our place. So that by faith in that sacrifice, you and I are right with God and don't have to fear standing in front of Him. Behold the Lamb of God, for that is the way of salvation. The story is told of the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When the London Metropolitan Tabernacle was being built, he did a sound check. You see, the church had grown 14,000 people attending Sunday morning services. They had to build a new building. Now, this was the day before sound booths and sound equipment. It was just Charles Spurgeon who climbed steps to a platform that was suspended between the first and second stories of the building. They were doing the finishing touches, finishing the woodwork inside. And he ascends to the pulpit. And to test the sound in there, he utters these words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His voice echoed throughout the building. Satisfied, he began walking down the steps and he was speaking with workmen. And as he got to the door to leave, one man came running up to him said, Mr. Spurgeon, I was at the very top of the roof finishing some things up and I heard what you said and I needed to come to ask you, what must I do to be saved? There is no other way of salvation other than the Lamb of God. Will you believe that today? The other thing you must do is this. Will you trust the victory of that Lamb? Will you not only trust that Lamb to save you, but to sustain you? To know that the battles that we face each and every day, the Lamb of God has died on your behalf and will not forsake you. Will you trust His victory? What keeps us from falling into discouragement and despair other than the fact that Jesus Christ is with us and is guiding us and is strengthening us every step along the way? We grieve, but we have hope. We are in despair, but we are not crushed because the victory has been won. I have no doubt that the name of Eugene Bartlett Sr. is not a name spoken on most lips regularly. He was a hymn writer. 
not as well known as a Fanny Crosby. He wrote many hymns and none of them really gained a lot of popularity except one. One that he wrote in the last two years of his life. In 1939, Eugene Bartlett was stricken with a severe stroke. And for the last two years of his life, he was in bed. But before he died, as he is in bed and suffering, he wrote these words. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. Sing it with me. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He sought me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. Written by a man who would die in that bed. Do you know that victory today? The victory of the Lamb that says, I will fear not my God is with me. I want to ask you to bow your heads this morning.